Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Written by the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, the book of Revelation is, God, is the Holy Spirit's revelation of Jesus Christ into the affairs of mankind. In its pages, we have promised blessing if we read, understand, and apply it to our lives. And this evening, I trust that we will do just that as we are once again in Revelation chapter 2 this evening. We'll be jumping around a little bit. We'll be going through uh, Ephesians. We'll potentially touch on 2 Timothy. Uh, So just stay with me, but our primary text will be in Revelation chapter 2 this evening. How would you define motivation? Think about that for a second. Motivation. Can I submit to you that motivation is everywhere. In fact, we see the effects of motivation everywhere, and after all, you are here tonight because you were motivated to be here this evening. Motives and motivation are everywhere, and they play into every part of our life. Think about this. Motivation spurs us onward. Motivation prevents us from doing something and instead causes us to do or to choose the opposite or something else. So again, motivation is everywhere, but also think about this. Within the realm of motivation, several things can motivate us. Our circumstances can sometimes motivate us. Our emotions can motivate us. Anger can motivate. Fear can motivate. Hope can motivate, and optimism can motivate the same On the opposite, despair and pessimism can also motivate. And so motivation then answers the why for what I do. And we would agree that actions done in our life are important to assess, but more than that, I think we also see that since our actions flow out of our motivations, they too are of utmost importance. In thinking about motivation, what then is the greatest motivation? I mentioned quite a few just a few seconds ago. We considered fear, anger, hope, but all of these motives fall short in their power uh, to, uh, to bring about motivation. Well, they can still motivate, but none of them quite motivate like love. If we love something, there is nothing greater as far as motivation. After all, the people, the things, and actions we love, we pursue and we invest in. We seek those things that we love. And the Apostle Paul spoke about this love in what is considered the love chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when he states that the greatest of spiritual motivations is not faith, but it is love. Faith, hope, and charity, the greatest of these is charity, love. And if love is lacking in our life, our life lacks harmony. We are a sounding brass or a twinkling cymbal. It makes sense then that the greatest commandment given to us then is to love our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the expectation. But how many of us meet that expectation? We know that love is commanded. We know love is expected. 
But we also know that love is love for God and love for others is rare. In fact, we are confronted in our culture and in our hearts that we don't love our God and we don't love others as we should. Our culture has become a loveless culture. We see this in abortion. We see this in mass shootings. We see this in political unrest and corruption that goes with that. We have become a self-serving, self-loving country. Unless we think the church is better, our churches likewise seem to heap unto themselves teachers that they would serve their liking. So the question is, how should we navigate these perilous times? Well, tonight we are going to see the Ephesian church, and we're going to see what Jesus says about the Ephesian church and their assembly And I believe we must come to realize that love for Jesus is the most necessary component for spiritual motivation and also when gauging spiritual success. Again, we're in Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 1. These are Jesus' words. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. What was the nature of the Ephesian church? And I think that's going to be our first point. We're going to look, what did the Ephesian church look like? What was the Ephesian church like? Well, can I say, can I submit to you that there was a promising beginning? The promising beginning. Go Flip over to Acts chapter 20. And we're going to look at verse 27 just to see what did the Ephesian church look like. What was the beginning of the Ephesian church? In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. He had a a promise that he was going to fulfill, and he had to go back. Well, on his way, he stopped off, and he met with the Ephesian elders. And he imparted unto them some advice, and he imparted unto them some wisdom, and we have it recorded for us In Acts chapter 20. We'll pick up in verse 20. You know what? Let's go to verse 18. It says, And when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes and recounts the message that he had to the Ephesian church. Now skip down to verse 27. He says, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And then he goes through and talks about the history. Look at verse 31. 
He says, therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone, everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. What is Paul saying? He says, remember how I lived among you and how for the span of three years I preached everything that you would need in order to be faithful. He had, the Ephesian church had a promising beginning. He spent three years teaching night and day the whole counsel of God. If you were to look at the schedule that Paul kept, it was pretty, uh, pretty strenuous. He went from house to house where he went uh, teaching and he explained and expounded all the things necessary of what it means to be a believer and how to live their life. So they had apostolic influence. On top of that, if you fast forward, tradition states that the Apostle John also spent time in Ephesus. And he spent time ministering there. And then also, if you think about who the, uh, the Ephesian church had as far as leadership, uh, you look at First and Second Timothy, and that book by, written by the Apostle Paul is written to his son in the faith, Timothy. And Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus. So they had a promising beginning. There was great opportunity in Ephesus, but there was also great opposition. And so Paul reminds the the Ephesian believers in Acts chapter 20 of their heritage, that there was a promising beginning. What was true of the the servants or the the people in uh, Ephesus? They had a promising beginning, but then also they were a faithful assembly. Go back over to Revelation chapter 2, because as Jesus goes through and recounts and passes, if you will, judgment upon this church, there were some things that he mentions, and he mentions some very good things, can I say? The Lord commended them on quite a few things. It says, I know thy works and thy labor. And thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. You have also borne and hast had patience. For my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. The Lord commended them on quite a few things. What were some of the things that he commended them on? Well, first off, their toil. And this word toil means that these were busy people in the work of the Lord. They labored to the point of exhaustion. And who did they labor for? They labored for his namesake. Verse 3, thou hast borne and thou hast patience. And for my namesake hast labored. They worked to the point of exhaustion for Jesus' namesake. What does that mean? That means that Jesus would be known and glorified. Isn't this a great testimony of a church? Around here at Grace, we seek to exalt our Lord in everything. That's one of the three E's that's on our website and on our, on our, uh, our information. We want to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Ephesian church, they appear to have been successfully achieving this goal. They labored hard for Jesus. They took Paul's admonition in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 where he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, 
which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And this, these believers were doing that. <clears throat> they were ordained to walk in good works, and they were doing it. They toiled. What else was true of them? They were pure. What does that mean? Well, they kept the assembly from evil influences. They tested every spirit. In this case, there were some that sought to come in to sneak in and to bring about uh, improper teaching. And the verse, verse 2 says, Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. They were pure. They kept the assembly from evil influences. Acts chapter 20 again says, as Paul gives the warning, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Lord of the Holy Ghost, excuse me, hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And so Paul gives them this warning, and it seems like they heeded it. In fact, we have, as Jesus mentions, a situation where there were some who came in and said, hey, we're the apostles of Jesus as well. And they tested them, and they found out that they truly weren't. And so they were pure. So they toiled hard, and they were pure. What else was true of them? Well, they were discerning. They knew right doctrine, and they protected it. It protected them from being children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They were able to discern and pick up on when things were not right. So they, were, they toiled hard. They were pure. They were discerning. And they were faithful. They persevered and they had patience. Verse 3, thou hast borne. In other words, they had bared up under the difficulty. You had patience. And it was all for my name's sake. They've labored and had not fainted. They had perseverance. Now with that in mind, if you were to give a grade to the Ephesian church, knowing these things were true, what grade would you give to them? There were so many good things. And if it were me looking at this list and understanding the apostolic presence and the exhortation and seeing the testimony of their body, I would probably give them an A+. <clears throat> at least an A, it would be pretty high. But we see that there is a problem. And Jesus, in one verse, exposes the tendency of the Ephesian believers, and I would likewise say the tendency of every single one of our hearts. They lacked something, and we too lack something at times. And it's something that needs attention right away. It's not something that we can play around with. It's not something that we can kind of think, well, it's not that big of a deal. This is a massive deal. And the Lord steps forth, and we have verse 4. Because now we saw the nature of the Ephesian church, but now we will see the problem of the Ephesian church. And it starts off with the phrase, nevertheless. He says, everything is good except... This all looks really good. You're doing a great job. Nevertheless, I have somewhat ought against thee. This is our Savior. And he comes and he assesses, and now he passes judgment, and he says, you, you've done well, except. 
Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. What is it that they were lacking? Well, they left their first love. They left their first love. What does that mean? Well, I think the way that it is described is so important. It's so poignant. It doesn't mean that they never had the love. What does it say? It says that they left their love. They left their first love. Their love was not missing. In fact, they were a loving congregation at one time. Ephesians, go over to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15 says very clearly, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and love. The Apostle Paul heard about their faith, and then he also heard about their love. And their love unto all the saints. These were a loving, this was a loving congregation at one point. Their love was not missing. You know, at first I was curious, with such an emphasis on teaching and perseverance and holiness, which, can I admit, sometimes comes across as cold and calculating, was their instruction concerning love, was it missing? And the answer was no. Paul even makes it clear that he is praying that they would understand the spiritual love that they have and that they would exercise that love to those around. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 14. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. This is what Paul says. The one who instructed them night and day, the one who passed on doctrine, the one who taught them what it means to be a believer... Verse 14, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would, here's the prayer request, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. There's not a period there, it continues. Here's the other, another prayer request. That Christ may dwell in your hearts, which, what is your heart? In scripture, it is the seat of love and affection. So here's a little inkling of what we're going to get to. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in what? <clears throat> in love. That Here's verse 18. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passes understanding, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. What was Paul instructing these believers to do that they, and praying for that they would know the love of Christ? And not just that they would know that Christ loves them, but that, Christ, that they would know that Christ loves them and how deep they know that, that he loves them. The breadth, the length, the depth, and the height. Every part of the love of Christ. That they would be so overwhelmed by the love of Christ that it would then ooze out to those around. So they were instructed in the love of their Savior. They didn't have an excuse. Their love was not missing. So what happened? Their instruction was there. Even the love of their Savior was in them. 
how can Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 get to a point in verse 4 and say, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. You left your first love. Their love was not missing. Instead, their love for the Lord grew cold. Their love had grown cold. That means that love for Christ no longer motivated their actions. They went through the motions. They showed up at church. They did what they were supposed to do. They even protected the other saints around them. They fought for the purity of the gospel. And they stopped loving their Savior. Their love grew cold. Now, with that in mind, think about this. Without love, their positive influences mean nothing. They became like 1 Corinthians 13. Their actions became a sounding brass and a twinkling cymbal. It didn't make sense. Basically, because they lacked, God, or lacked love, their Christian assets became a liability. Think about this. Their toil. Because they didn't have love for their Savior, their busyness in the work of the Lord became simple ritualism. They did the work, but their hearts were not in it. We've been reading in the, in the uh, last part of the Old Testament. And can I say, God often went to his people and said, they do the work, but their hearts are far from me. The children of Israel had lost their first love. And again, the Ephesian believers the same. Their toil, their busyness in the work of the Lord became empty rituals. They did their work, but their hearts were not in it. What about their purity? Hey, they guarded the assembly from evil. Can I say that has a tendency to become self-righteous? Hey, listen, you know that church down the road? They've fallen away from the Lord, not us. We protect pure doctrine at this church. And they became self-righteous. A perfect example of this would be the Judaizers. Oh, no, no, no. We, we need to keep, we need to keep the traditions. So their toil became a uh, liability. Their purity even became self-righteousness. What about their discerning? Well, they knew right doctrine. But what is true of knowledge well, knowledge puffeth up, as Scripture says. And so they knew right doctrine, and it puffed them up. Again, we have figured it out. We know where we need to stand. There was pride. Their faithfulness, their perseverance, and their patience, it turned cold and calculating. No longer was the warmth there. Instead, it was rigid. It was uninviting. Now, beloved, we would probably never tell the Lord that we don't love him. We probably all would say, of course I love the Lord. But leaving our first love happens so easily. And one major test is if our hearts grow cold to the things of the Lord but also our actions betray us. We start to follow other things 
Why? Because the thing we love, we pursue. And can I say, there are going to be times when you must make a choice based off of your love. And you're going to have to say, no, I will not do one thing or I will not do another thing. Why? Not because it's what I've always done, but because I love my Savior. And oftentimes we like to think, hey, if, you know, if I can love myself or my pursuits and also make it look like I'm loving God at the same, well, hey, this is great. Let's add that all together and we'll do this little conglomeration and we'll say, hey, I'm loving God. When in reality we're loving ourselves and tacking God onto it. Oh, we have to be so careful. And I sat in my office and I thought, Lord, how often do I do this? Then apathy kind of follows after that. And some of you have walked with the Lord for decades. Longer than I've been alive, can I say the temptation is there. To walk away, to leave your first love. You forget what that moment was when you accepted the Lord, where your sins were washed away, everything felt clean, you had the burden lifted, and boy, did you love Jesus. For those who are newly saved, can I say, beware, the excitement and joy could fade away. I would have to ask, do you love Jesus this evening? Again, we probably all would say, of course I do. But really, do you love your Savior? What if you say, Pastor Nate, there are some things that have crept in. There are some things that maybe... Maybe, I, maybe my love has grown cold. Can I say, I love when God's word tells us how to make things right. And he does that. Jesus tells them the remedy now for the Ephesian church. If you sit here and things have gotten cold and things have gotten rote and things have gotten just mechanical in your walk, what do you need to do? We have the remedy. He says, verse 4, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Verse 5. Here's the test, or here's the process, excuse me. He says, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent. And do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his, his place, except thou repent. Jesus gives for us the remedy, and he says, remember. Remember. He calls them to remember. Why does he say that? Well, because we're so forgetful. We forget, and we are fickle, and it doesn't, you know, our, our situation and our circumstances change, and we forget. And so he says, remember. What are we to do? We are to remember who our Savior is and what he's done for us. Beloved, what do you have in Christ if you sit here as a child of God? Flip back over to Ephesians chapter 2, because the Apostle Paul explained what they have in Christ. And I think perhaps it's time we reflect on what we have in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. says, And you hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. What did that look like? Verse 2, Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we had, or we all had, our conversation in time past 
in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. This is who we were in our natural state. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 4. Verse 4 begins with wonderful words. Verse 4 says, but God, in the midst of our death and in the midst of our sin, following whatever whim our flesh dug up, verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. He's raised us up together and he's made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace you save through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not of works lest any man should boast, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. What did the the Ephesian believers need to do? They needed to remember. They needed to go back and they needed to remember what Christ did for them. What do you have in Jesus? Again, perhaps it's time we reflect on our walks with him. What then after remembering? What else do we do? Because it's not enough just to remember. He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent. The idea of repenting is changing our mind. Can I say there's a part of repentance that is our responsibility. We change our mind. We change our focus. We were going this direction and then we turn around. So we remember from whence thou art fallen and we repent. We repent of what? Well, we repent of our professional Christianity. We we repent of just the outward show. We repent of our pride. We repent of our self-righteousness. And we say something to the effect of, Lord, I don't want to go through the motions anymore. I want my heart to be in this. Would you help me? So you remember and then you repent. And then what else are we called to do? Do the first works. Oh, there's still going to be works involved. But now you're going to do them because you love your Savior. That's going to be the thing that pushes you. Replace the tradition with love for Christ and turn that fresh love into action. That's what Jesus says to them. In fact, he even says that if you don't do that, there's a warning. He says, if you don't do this, I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except you repent. What does that look like? Well, let's think a little bit about the history of Ephesus, uh, the Ephesian church again. There came a point when they didn't replace or did not repent and did not remember. And so Jesus came and did pluck that candle. He 
removed them. Beloved, have you left your first love? There are consequences if you have. So to wrap all of this up, we've looked at the nature of the Ephesian church. We've looked at the problem of the Ephesian church, and then we also have seen the remedy of the Ephesian church. Within battlefield doctrine, one of the cardinal tenets of attacking an enemy is don't attack the hometowns of those you are fighting. If you plan to attack, it is better to attack your enemy in the field. It is better to attack with an overwhelming force. Why? Because an enemy dug in is difficult. But more importantly, an enemy fighting for their homes and for the people they love is even more difficult to overcome. An enemy in the field may surrender easier than an enemy fighting from house to house simply because those defending their homes will fight to the death. And as I stated at the beginning, love is the greatest motivation. And in battlefield doctrine, it often transforms a timid person into a dogged defender. Why? Because they love their homeland. They love the people around them. Love in the spiritual realm is also, I would submit, the greatest motivator as well. What becomes then... The question is, who do you love today? I feel that our country's greatest danger is not Russia. Our country's greatest danger is not inflation. It's not COVID. I would even say it's not unfaithfulness. I believe the core of our troubles in our times of today, the perilous times that we live in today, can be summed up that we don't love Jesus We don't love God anymore. We love our pursuits. We love our way. That's why in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul says to Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus, that perilous times will come, and uh, men will be lovers of their own selves. And after that, then he expounds on what lovers of their own selves look like. And he leaves... Quite the list. And it all starts because we have now chosen to love ourselves. Tonight we were confronted with the necessity of love for Christ as the motivator for everything. Now, can I say, for the unsaved, they can't love Jesus until they accept Christ. So we preach to them the gospel. We tell them what, they, what the gospel has done. We tell them the good news. But now, what about for us as God's children? Can I say we need the gospel too? We need to be reminded of what our Savior did for us. We need to be reminded of what we have in Jesus so that our love might not grow cold, so that we would serve out of love, that we would protect the purity of the church in love, that we would have discernment because we love, and that we would be faithful to the end. Why? Because we love our Savior. The Ephesian believers had every opportunity to learn this vital lesson, but became cold. If they, having all the influences that they have, 
If they grew cold in their love, can I say we probably can too. They did not have an excuse, however, and neither do we. We often think that if we're doing the job, we're being faithful in action, then that we are serving our Lord. But love is what Jesus is looking for. Are you loving him supremely? Can I say, how, do you, how, do I, how does a person know if they are loving Christ supremely? Well, what are you pursuing? The Ephesians were pursuing some of these things that sound spiritual. And I would even say some good things that are spiritual in nature. But most importantly, they had left their first love. They loved the toil. They loved the purity. They loved the discernment, but they did not love their Savior like they should have. Nothing wrong with loving these things as long as love for the Savior is superintending all of it. But once those things take the place of Jesus, now we have a problem. And I would say, and I would ask, would you say that you love Jesus now more and more each day? Or are other things crowding your love for him? Is love for him the reason why you do what you do? If not, we do have this warning. We must remember, we must return, and we must do the works you have previously done. I think it's high time that we, as the body of Christ, remember what our Savior did for us. That's why we get together and we do the Lord's table. Have you ever noticed that? He says, remember what I've done. Why? Because we're so forgetful. And I would ask, have you left your first love this evening? Would you bow again in prayer with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I would confess in my own heart, this is a tendency of my heart. Lord, I can go through the motion so easily. Lord, I can even try to protect the gospel. Lord, what you desire from me is that I love you. Lord, what you desire from all of us is that we love you supremely. And then that that love would then transform the way we go about our business. Oh, Lord, I'm so thankful for the love of my Savior. Lord, that loved me enough to come to this earth, live a perfect life, something I could never do, and then to hang on the cross naked for me and for my sin. Oh, Lord, would you help us to fall in love with you all over again? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.